Welcome to the podcast to be named later, where we explore the world a conversation at a time. Sit back and enjoy. Here are your hosts, Chris and Kelly. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the podcast to be named later. I'd like to tell you we're coming from Radio Row, but Chris couldn't make that arrangement. So we're back in our regular studios. Instead of us going to Radio Row, though, we do have the guests coming to us. Not only is Chris here, how you doing, Chris? I'm doing really good, Kelly. Great. We have a special guest with us tonight. Talk a little bit about Seattle football, Boeing airplanes, and more by the name of Dan Plaster. Dan's a former colleague of mine, friend, and all-around good guy. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks for coming on, Dan. Howdy, y'all. Great. Um, so, Dan, here at the podcast to be named later, we don't pull any punches, so I'm going to put you on the spot early on. Uh, and we've already crunched the Super Bowl up and down, and like they always say, people are ready to play the game. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Who's going to win on Sunday and why? I... I've watched that game with the Eagles taking care of business, and I uh, see their defense seemed pretty, uh, pretty uh, stout. I listened to a story with uh, Mahomes saying he's all good and stuff, but I don't know. The Eagles look, uh, the Eagles look better than the Chiefs. To me. Yeah, that was a, that was similar to what Kelly and I kind of both thought as well. But I did, I did hear that. Uh, the receivers are all good to go. That was part of my thinking was like, hey, man, the Chiefs just feel a little banged up. You know, like they had like three receivers leave that championship game, and Mahomes yeah, obviously yeah. is on a bad ankle. But I did hear everyone's good to go. So, I mean, for both teams, it sounds like everyone's everyone's a go. All, all those three receivers are back? Yeah. Uh, Hardman's, yeah wow. Hardman's not. Hardman's not going to play. He's the only one. They put him on IR and uh, activated uh, CEH off of IR. But, yeah, but the other guys, uh, Tony and, and – um, uh, who's the other one that it, went out in that game? Maybe it'd be a better game. Yeah, I, mean, I think it will. Because the Eagles just humiliated San Francisco, which I enjoyed tremendously, by, by the way. Being <laughs> 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 a I mean, Seahawks rivalry. fan, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it would have been better if it was a better game, but it was just they just went after after uh, Brock Purdy, which, you know, not very pretty. But anyway, yeah, yeah. Well, I know we want to talk about some of this stuff, but I'm I'm kind of curious, being a Seahawks fan, um, you know, what what are your thoughts on your squad? Like, you know, what direction do you hope you go? Are you hoping you keep Gino? Do you, do you, is he not the yeah. answer? What are your feelings for heading into next year? So I don't really listen to the news much anymore. I just listen to sports radio, and that's pretty much all they've been talking about, except for the Mariners and the Kraken at times. Uh, although we don't talk about last night's game, but anyway, the yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, the uh, so I, but the rule about the Kraken is, is I don't watch the games because when I do, they lose. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, they keep talking about, like, franchise tag and this much and how much is he worth versus uh, uh, Dak Prescott versus uh, – who's the Raiders guy? Um, Carr. Carr. You know, yeah, Derek Carr. I'm like, yeah, you're – I don't know. I mean, then they talk about, like, well, is it just the coaching, uh, uh, Pete coaching him up and – you know, making him better. I mean, that's true. I think it's true about Russ. Uh, I like to say, like, Super Bowl Forty Eight was won by the defense, not the offense, and then Super Bowl Forty Nine was lost by the offense. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's – I don't no, know. Dude, I don't, hold I don't on know. a minute. Super Bowl Forty Nine wasn't lost by the offense. It was uh, lost by the play caller. 
Well, yeah, yeah I mean, too. yeah, fair enough. I mean, it uh, wasn't too hard for anyone watching to see that uh, they were not stopping Lynch no matter what. So I don't think yeah, he I had know. gotten stopped for a loss in that game, and they needed a yeah. yard. It's like, yeah, uh, I mean, they needed a yard. Give me the ball. But that was, yeah, yeah that was uh, Derek Bevel. Daryl Bevel, my old Darryl Wisconsin Bevel. Badgers super Rose Bowl yeah. winning quarterback. Worst play call ever. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, that was we don't talk one. about that game. Yeah, we can talk about it. <laughs> well, so, we, yeah, we've I don't suffered know as a Packer fan. We've suffered yeah, some of yeah, our worst defeats yeah. to you guys. You got the, 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 the fail Mary, the inaccurate reception. Yeah. No, we <laughs> yeah. had our worst defeat from you, though, buddy. <laughs> yeah. We were up four minutes two, to yeah. go. Two and scores I was with two minutes to go. And that was McCarthy's fault? Or what? No, well, players. A, li- a, a little, little bit on the the third string tight ends' fault. Get the hell out the yeah. way. <laughs> Let's but. see. Your job is not to pick up the ball. Yeah, no. um, we're not sore. No. <laughs> nah. Yeah. I still have yeah. the heartbreak from that man. I was right outside, sitting there, ready to buy my Super Bowl ticket. Oh, jeez, that's horrible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, coaching up, Dan, what, what do you think happened with Wilson in uh, Denver and with Sean Payton and coming on board? How's Russ going to respond to that? Well, they were talking about that in Sean Payton's interview. Like, kind of, did he, it didn't sound like a very positive, uplifting statement he made about Russ. <laughs> I mean, they were talking about all about sports. I'm like, did you just throw him under the bus? I mean, I don't know. Did you hear that interview? I did, I did not. No. Uh, yeah, you're not CX fans. You probably don't follow stuff. I mean, we we enjoy the dumpster fire in Denver a lot. I'm sure you talked about it a lot. Um, it's kind of like yeah, I don't Brett Favre when he left, right? You know, we enjoyed his <laughs> failings and demise. Other. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I I um I just figure they paid a lot of money for Peyton, but he's going to tell Russ like, here's the deal. Here's the deal. <laughs> You, you got to do this thing. So, I don't know. They, they're kind of in a big, huge financial bind, so I don't really care. I mean, Seahawks came out smelling like roses. Kelly and I have talked about that on, on, a, on a previous podcast that, like, you know, you, I understand why why you would uh, be happy to see, like, oh, it's not working out so hot. Tough break. Sorry to hear that. But not to mention when you get their picks, it's like, you know, the worse they do, the better off it is for you. But yeah. uh, Seattle, I mean, they came out great. You know, they got picks. Yeah. They they got rid of Russ. They got rid of the salary. I mean, it's all it's all it's all good. <laughs> it's all good. And Denver's bound up for years in this mess. Uh, oh yeah. So yeah. I mean, we we need to get some good picks. We need to get a some defense help. And uh, I don't know if Genie's coming back or not. I don't know. Maybe maybe it is. I don't know. It's, yeah, it's just who, curious who as a fan, back? like what what your desire would be, you know, and what your what your hopes. I mean, at the end of the day, I don't think they're going to call you and, and ask for your opinion. No. Uh, <laughs> no, but not. I'm just, you know, we're, we're all fans, right? And I kind of have hopes for what my teams will do. You know, what kind of moves I can I, I can see like it being beneficial. And uh, I was just curious, what as a Seahawks fan, what you feel about Geno and, and can you build a squad? Because Seahawks did pretty good, man. I mean, they were right in the thick of it, right till the very end, as far as uh, having a shot at the playoffs. Better than anybody expected. Oh yeah. Yeah, they wrote us off. I mean, that was the joke about Gino. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I kind of go back to uh, defenses win championships. So, Russ wasn't a great – he was a young quarterback when they got him. And it wasn't him who got to the Super Bowl. It was the defense. And it, 
adequate offense. Or at least that's what I recall at the time. Well, having so, yeah, Lynch in that offensive line and, and being built the way yeah. they were, it freed yeah. Russ up, I think, to, you know, he didn't he didn't have to. Like, he's, he's actually, he was very similar, in my mind, to uh, who Jalen Hurts is now. Like, hey, the team's yeah. built good with defense. The team has a good yeah. offensive line. We can run the ball. We got a couple playmakers for you if you need to use them. But you don't, we, you don't have to put the team on your back. And I felt like in the heyday well, of the Seahawks, that's how Russ was. Well, wasn't that the 49ers this year? Yeah, I mean, same, same thing. You know, they're three built the right way. Yeah, I mean, they get one fourth, fourth string quarterback and then uh, your running quarterback, back is a quarterback. Four for them. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's that, that's why the, the the whiners and the Seahawks were such a <laughs> competitive uh, – the, the, I refer to them as the Santa Clara whiners because they are not in San Francisco anymore. They're, no. like, closer – they're, like, across the street from San Jose. But anyway, um, yeah, you know, very similar – in their styles, so we'll see. All right, so it sounds like we're all in on Philadelphia. <laughs> Denver's a dumpster fire, uh, <laughs> and we don't quite know what the Seahawks are going to do. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not nearly as the big a football fan as you guys are, but um, I enjoy the my enemies <laughs> having problems. <laughs> <laughs> so these football players you know to get around Dan they use uh, vehicles or whatever from your former job airplanes uh, airplanes you used to be a, a metals engineer at Boeing yes uh, what's a metals engineer do uh, well um, a variety of things uh, so how it's organized is uh, we were part of what's called structures engineering which is the airframe, the design, build of the airframe, uh, which is the most important part of the thing, because um, if it fails, you die. Um, and See, this it's is made what up I was of talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, my wife says she hates to. Well, so so when I started out, we we as a materials engineer, my degree is material science engineering. Uh, there's people who are composites engineers, which is the seven eight seven. The A380 or more, much more graphite uh, structures. But you start out doing what's called failure analysis, which you get a part in from the airline, something broke, figure out why it broke. Um, what's and the, the the probably the bigger ones, which will make you feel really good, Chris, is um, uh, when I started. There was the Aloha Airlines incident where the fuselage ruptured during during landing or on approach to Honolulu, and that had to do with corrosion and what's called fatigue where the metal uh, tears apart due to a lot of stuff and so that was kind of my introduction to that and being aware of how things fail and structure uh, let me stop talking Kelly does that answer your question yeah Nothing sure um, so when you're let's just talk about airplanes I mean these things are mammoth uh, before we started uh, recording, you were talking a little bit. Can you give us a sense on, you know, uh, the plane that last one came off the production line this week, and was it this week or, or late last week in Boeing? Yeah, um, uh, 747. The last one, I mean, that's really the end of an era, but you were talking about uh, the airline wing. Can you give us a sense of the size from, you know, the part of that that's connected to the 
airliner itself all the way out to the other end of the wing like what's that like so uh, what we talked about earlier is the the wing is the gas tank the whole thing is the gas tank and uh there's no separate you know gas tanks like in your car and in what it's called is the center section so the part of the wing that attaches to the body of the airplane which is called the fuselage it goes underneath the whole thing and it's it's it doesn't I mean how to say it doesn't really attach to the fuselage it is part of the fuselage it's a huge structural major load so in a 747 I can walk in the center of that wing section underneath where you're in the passenger compartment I can stand up easily put my hand up and go from the bottom to the top if you go all the way up to the wing tip there's at some point you can't you know you're you're can't get your hand in there not the whole thing's fuel, but the center part underneath the fuselage is a big, huge part of the fuel tank, which is related to the TWA flight in if you want to ask. And then it goes out, not all the way to the wingtip, maybe two-thirds of the wingtip. Uh, that has to be, it's all sealed because it, it is a gas tank. So that's the size of that thing. 737, the smallest airplane they make, I couldn't stand up in, the, in that part underneath the fuselage. I had to bend over, barely get in there. That's interesting. I didn't realize that. I mean, I fly on planes quite a bit. I travel quite a bit. I'm uh, on planes weekly for the most part uh, for most of the year. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I, you know, I wonder that as, as well. It's like, you know, I, I just trust that they know what they're doing. <laughs> and so there's a lot of things in this world I've come to realize I don't have a lot of understanding about. But I know other people who were involved do, and, and I just trust that the, they did a good job. And But I didn't realize the wing – uh, was actually part of the fuselage that it was all like you know one unit. Uh, I just assumed that you know they were welded on, screwed on, bolted on. I I, I didn't know actually, but I just uh, assumed that they were out there. And yeah, when you see those things hopping around a little bit, it's like well, huh? <laughs> Hope they hang so, on. So when you're looking out the window and you see the wingtip flipping, B fifty two B fifty two that wingtip goes through about it can go from eighteen feet from top to bottom. So the airplane's loaded with fuel on the ground, B-52, which is a military airplane, not a commercial. I remember going to a, a air show and the guy explaining that fully loaded, that wing hangs down and then it goes into the air and it can go 18 feet from, till that you got lift on the on the wing. I was just fab, flabbergasted that. It's so you're huge. saying that that air, that wing from the ground to where the wing is changes by 18 feet yeah, on a b-52 a it's a lot of flex now you'll wow. see if you're if you're sitting in a, in a in a commercial airplane you'll see the wing if you're in turbulence you'll see the wing bouncing around it's nothing that big i mean commercial airplanes are much more conservative than military airplanes so let's talk a little more about that what you just said bouncing around dan uh just even like We've all been on airplanes, and I'm, you know, I'm not a big fan of turbulence. Was flying back <laughs> from Texas once and had some really wild turbulence where uh, m my wife Amy said even the airline staff, their faces looked a little concerned. So that one got me going a little bit. Has a few times since then, but like. How much should we be worried? Like, what do they do to make sure that the airplanes don't come apart and the wings don't tear off when they're bouncing around like that? So uh, there's a huge amount of safety factors. Well, safety factor is a, a critical part of it. 
Um, it's also experience from past airplanes. Um, they do both what's called a static test bird. So a lot of times when a new airplane comes out, I remember this 777 in fact in particular, they'll, the first airplane comes out, it's the flight test bird. Boeing owns it, nobody wants to buy it because it goes through all the tests. But then they, they build a couple of fuselages. One of them is called the static test bird. This is the, it doesn't have any, it's basically the fuselage and the wing. And they put it, a whole bunch of hydraulic jacks on the thing and they load it up until it breaks. The spar, the wing spars break. And what's critical about that is they do a lot of finite element modeling and they do major loads into the wings and they, and they iterate on this. It's a lot of computer programs. Um, key thing I remember talking to one of the one of the chief well not the chief engineer but one of the guy was like you, you you have these fundamental element models for small parts of the airplane and then you have these big structures so scaling up is complicated he goes well actually we want to know where the thing fails and we want to know that all of our models that predict the failure are within a very small margin of uh, what actually happens. So you say, like, hey, if this thing, like if I load it up to 150% of design load and it fails at 170%, I'm good. He goes, no, that means our models are wrong. So we have to go back and analyze what. So they're very careful about that. And there's also the other airplane structure they make is called the fatigue test bird. So that goes more into where, where you get all these cyclic loading, um, which we can talk about with the Aloha incident and some other, other uh, Interesting, Eric. So I'm going to ask you to pause for a second. Sure, sorry. No, that's Talk okay. For those of us who didn't go to engineering school, I went to journalism <laughs> school. Um, when you talk about design load, is that like the weight the things are meant to carry, or what does that term mean, Dan? So, um, if you're a pilot, <laughs> there there's a there's a max load. So. Imagine an airplane is in a, in a dive and you pull out. So you have load on that wing. The wing is what lifts the airplane into the, into the air. It's aerodynamics. So you have a maximum load that that airplane is designed to take uh, under worst case conditions at a certain airspeed. And then they design for a certain margin above that, usually 50% above it. Um, and so that's kind of the, the what's called the static load limit or, you know, what, what can this airplane take in a, in a worst case so you're saying and they take the worst case scenario and then they add 50 percent to it typically that when i worked there that was the thing yeah so that, but, well, that but, makes me feel better <laughs> but, but so. when you say worst case scenario you know if you're in a vertical dive that's not um, um you know it has to do with like your uh, pilots talk about like rejected takeoffs or maximum maneuverable speed so if you're you know you know, there, there's, there's, you know, if you're in a vertical dive, kind of all bets are off. But, um, you know, typically you're in, and they, they do a lot of studies about, like, what aircraft have encountered, um, you know, in, if, and they have a lot of data. All those flight data recorders, they're huh. keeping track of this stuff. So, And that, and that tells them, like, hey, I, at this point we were at, you know, XGs, you know, obviously a commercial airplanes you know maybe not experienced in that the same as as like say like a fighter plane or something would but yeah, no, but, the, but that flight data will, will, will explain you know everything as far as like how much stress was put on it and Correct. where and when and, and all uh, see that's all I, I didn't know all that either actually i knew so, it recorded so the where, like the conversations and like you know the g yeah. i knew it, it said oh, where no, it no. was 
But. Oh yeah, I mean there's the GPS stuff, but there but there's a whole bunch of stuff where they're talking about indicated airspeed. They're talking about loading on the wings, RPMs on engines. I mean there's a whole lot of stuff. I mean they they got more and more sophistication. I mean we used to do stuff with uh, tests where they put piezoelectric cells on stuff when you're flexing the thing in, in a in a test uh, in the in the uh, in the factory. Uh, they do more and more of that in uh, in production. Okay, so you're a metal engineer. Did you ever just like go out and just whack the airplane with a hammer and see what happens? <laughs> no. <laughs> we, no. We saw too much. So, so uh, you want to be a nerd? I mentioned fatigue. Fatigue is like so. What you say when you whack something with a hammer, you plastically deform that material permanently. Fatigue is a cool thing where you you have a little like a. A defect, like a like a scratch or a, a sharp point, or somebody you know screwed up when they're making the part or whatever, that acts as a stress concentrator, and you can like fuselage is particular. Like here, here, you want to make you feel good, Chris. The when you f- go up in the air, that whole fuselage, the, the place you're in, uh, you you know the outside air drops in temperature and drops in pressure. The inside doesn't nearly as much. So you're essentially Inside pressure is higher than outside pressure by about seven and a half psi. So the whole thing is like a pressurized beer can, and then it comes back down to land and it goes back to normal. So every one of those flights is a cycle. Pressurize it, depressurize it, pressurize, depressurize. Well, the Aloha incident, for instance, that airplane had about 80,000 of those cycles. Well, and, and, and so uh, I, I imagine there must be like a. a Given that, like the way you're the way you're talking, um, th- you know they they must have a, a a way of tracking like, hey, how many flights is this plane taking? How how much stress ha- has it been under? Like how how much fatigue should it have given the the miles on it and what it's been through and stuff? Because I know if like I want to tear a piece of metal, not, not a big piece of metal, there's nothing I can do about it, but but something that's smaller, um, I can I can bend it. And then uh, I can bend it back, and then bend it, and bend it, and bend it back and forth, back and forth, and eventually, uh, I, I can get to the point where you know, as long as I have a crease, I can tear that metal. Yeah. So that's actually plastic deformation. Fatigue is actually even below that level. So yeah, I know exactly what you cold working is. What you're doing is what it's called in the material science world. Uh, you're you're bending it. You're plastically deforming it. You're introducing a bunch of defects into the metal. That's um, nerdy science stuff. But yeah, you can eventually <laughs> rip it. Fatigue's actually below that, but um, what was your other thing? The, so I was saying, like, is there a lifespan on these planes? You know. Oh yeah, they- absolutely, absolutely. So they keep track of the airplanes. They keep track of their flight cycles. Um, they keep track of. I mean, basically, every time every flight is considered a flight cycle, and that's the funny thing is you get these uh, smaller short hop airplanes. Uh, Loha is a good example. Southwest is a good example. They go up. And they come down. They go up and come down. Whereas you have like a 747, which flies from here to Germany or from, you know, big long hauls. Those actually have more hours on the airframe and less cycles. Air Force One is the worst. It has like very few uh, cycles on it. Uh, But it's been around a long time. So the cycles matter in terms of metal fatigue and cycling. So let's say that, um, you know, like you said, okay, this thing is getting squeezed and then popped back out. Obviously, over time, they know about what the metal should be like given X number of repetitions of this. Yes. Do they do anything 
can they test the an airplane to see like while it's in service in some way that oh yeah this one's uh aging appropriately or something happened and this one is yeah. aging too fast like is there any way to test it yeah they do a bunch of well i've been there for 20 some years but yeah they would particularly like with the aloha incident where the fuselage broke open they did a whole bunch of analysis which i was teeny tiny small part of yeah and so they know where the cracks might be growing from so they do they have a bunch of non-destructive inspections they've also seen cases where um the thing was big enough uh that you could see it and they just cut it out and replace it uh which will make you feel good, Chris, is one Sweet. of the things... So is, running, flying around on planes with Band-Aids is what you're telling me. Awesome. Well, so, yeah, but no, but that, that's a deliberate That's a deliberate design thing. Hey, did they so, got Mickey Mouse versions? <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I don't think so. But that's a deliberate design thing where you could literally have a 24-inch crack back in the days, um, and the you it wouldn't be catastrophic. And... The idea was is that you couldn't pressurize that airplane. So you go up in altitude, you start to go up, and you had so much air leaking out of it, I mean, through small cracks, obviously, but over a large enough surface area that you couldn't pressurize it, and that's a huge red flag. I mean, that's the worst case, but that was the sort of the limit design of, like, if you can't pressurize the airplane, climb it up to altitude, you need to inspect it. But there was a whole lot of inspections they did before that to even avoid that situation. But so... Just to be clear on a couple of things you said, that's fascinating, man. Um, first of all, are, are, do planes fly every day with small cracks? I would say the probability is yes. Uh, but the thing is, um, this is what the design uh, criteria are. You assume you have a flaw. You have assumed you have defects in the structure and the design, and you have safety margins that you deliberately design against and you analyze to that. that. That is a huge part of the safety design is you don't assume everything's perfect. In fact, you quite the opposite. You design for defects and then you, the problem comes in is like in the Aloha incidences, they designed for defects, but they had a problem they didn't realize. And if you want to go back to the 50s, uh, the Comet airplanes, the British Comets, they designed for what they knew and they ran into a problem that was new that's kind of the bigger thing but they've been doing this for 50 years now and so they're pretty good about knowing you know there, there's some i mean they used to refer to the faa as the tombstone agency for every rule the faa has written there's an accident or an incident or a crash so it's it's still a learning process but they work really hard to try to anticipate situations and monitor them at any time there's something new that doesn't match what you have seen in the past it's a huge red flag and then the other thing I, I heard you say is just and I guess it makes sense if you think about it like so if these cracks get big enough the airplanes are built such that what they can just come in and take a section away and put a new piece in yeah I mean so you know if if, if they do a lot of non-destructive inspection. These are eddy current inspections for aluminum, for a steel, iron, what, metal what particle inspection. Eddy current inspections. That's. I mean, I've I've been away from Boeing for twenty some years, so I'm sure that's the okay. Is the journalism guy here, explain that but a little the, more. Well, and I'm a roofer, well, it, so explain it a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> so, back in the day, an eddy current inspection is you introduce an electric 
current in the aluminum. Aluminum is conductive to electricity. Um, and what happens is if there's a crack, the eddy current, which is a small current, will not flow across the crack because it's, uh, it's a crack. Ah. Um, and so you can visualize that. I mean, if you've done, uh, like if you're, a, if you're a gearhead with cars, you can do mag particle inspections on a casting for a, a, a block, uh, an engine block. And that's simple, similar, where there's a crack and you, a mag particle is you put particles on you and do some magnetic current through it, it won't, won't be able to jump that gap. You'll, you'll see a pattern that forms. So they do that sort of stuff. They do dye penetrant inspection where you put a dye on the surface and then it will bleed into small areas, very, very fine areas. And so they can do that. So when I told you, like when I started at Boeing, we would do, you asked about inspections, we would do this thing where um, the small cracks would would form and you, you could you couldn't visually see them but they knew about them via these non-destructive inspection techniques so they would cut the part out of the airplane they'd repair it and they'd send it into us and we would break it open and um, you could literally every time the airplane pressurizes and depressurizes the crack could grow a teeny tiny amount you couldn't see it visually you could only see it on a scanning electron microscope but we would do these um, to put it in an SEM, scanning electron microscope, and we could actually see these small little ridges that would form each time these things cycled. And we would do a, what's called striation cap. Like, and it was pretty crude, because there was corrosion on the things. And there's a funny joke about smoking and banning smoking, which was a huge, uh, useful thing. Um, you could actually say, like, the crack was growing at this rate. I mean, it's a very, very small amount. But you could use that to then extrapolate to say, well, this crack has 20,000 cycles on it. This airplane has 60,000 cycles on it. This crack probably formed 60,000 minus 40 or 20,000 that many cycles ago. This airplane's been in service. So that would drive a lot of the inspection criteria with a big margin of safety applied on top of it. So. Well, this is interesting much. stuff, man. I, I, so, I mean, I just, sit, I just sit in the seat and get, and get my, uh, I didn't get peanuts anymore. You get like, a, a mixed yeah, bag fine. of pretzels yeah. and stuff, but <laughs> I, I yeah, bring my own food, man. <laughs> this is yeah, really so interesting, Dan. I appreciate you sharing this stuff. Speaking of seats, I mean, I've read this many a time, but when they build these planes and all that, right? They they build them and there is no seats or anything, right? Correct. There's a, there's basically is there even a floor at first, or is that oh, the yeah, airline I mean, comes in and tricks all that out? So it it varies by airlines. Uh, so. The big structural mount point. So there's a, there's a floor beams, which uh, as a roofer you should know. There's a, there's a beams that go side to side, and then there's longitudinal beams. I mean, because you have to react. Yeah. The load of the wing comes into the fuselage and has to be reacted. Anyway, as far as the seats go, on top of that, I mean, it, it's basically just like you're in a in a house with no floors, just big open sink. But the seat. Are the things that run fore and aft that the seats tie to, and those are important structure because you know people are in the seats and they can't fly out of the seats, um, which is a big complaint because back in the day the load on the floor was such that you can only space seats so far apart. But over the time, airlines like we want to cram as many seats as tight as possible, so they had to make that yeah. stronger, which sucks that. for the passengers. <laughs> so I fly, yeah. To the extent you know, I've always been curious. I mean, you're sitting in the plane. And you hear them throwing all the suitcases underneath. What's it like on the underneath the floor in the cargo area? Um, so it's it's a 
it depends. Uh, I, I mean, I, I worked on the 767 Freighter, which was UPS was the launch customer for, and they were. It was a. It was a. It was not a, a passenger airplane. It was a cargo airplane, and they were very like, "Hey, we want things to be as simple and reliable as possible." But most of the time, it's exposed structure in there. I mean, uh, in a cargo plane, the whole thing's exposed. Um, in a passenger airplane, there's heating there because you can people transport animals. Um, they can have a variety of protective stuff installed. Like, typically, they put in aluminum sheeting to protect, like people toss it bags in. You don't want to damage the structure. In a cargo airplane, they're loading pallets in, so they need better protection. Because if you damage the frame of the airplane, you can't fly it, and so they're pretty particular about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, there'll, there'll be, you, there can be exposed cables, electrical wiring in the top. It, it depends on the airlines. I mean, they can you know specify, like some airlines, it's all passenger cargo. Other airlines, they may pick a variety of passenger bags versus cargo. They could even carry containers with seawater with live fish in them, um, all sorts of stuff. I'm, I'm picturing if a plane was a house, the cargo area would be the garage. And you could upgrade it if you want, but pretty much it's just uh, four walls and a floor. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's yeah. up to you if you I mean, want to put you gotta drywall protect in the, there or not. you got to protect the electrical stuff. And, I mean, the the... the Typically, like the freighter air airlines, um, it's much more bare bones there. When were you involved, or do you know much about? Uh, always amazes me. I think about oh, you're flying in this plane, and it's still going <clears throat> somewhere around 200 miles an hour, and a good landing. It feels like you know you're just touching the ground, but I'm sure that's still an awful lot of force and weight. What do, what do they do to test all that, and how's all that work work from a metal perspective, from what you know? Um, so yeah, that's part of the static test, and one of the things that's probably the biggest is the when you land, the fuselage is part of the weight, but the wings are the bigger part. So like you see these aborted takeoffs, or or, or somebody has to do a go around and land because there's an emergency, they need to dump fuel, and uh, the reason they need to dump fuel is that it is a huge amount of weight and. They're not designed, so you can take off with a full load of fuel in the wings, but the airplanes for commercial are not designed to land with a full load of fuel. Uh, I remember, in fact, um, we had this this Russian Airlines, I can't remember the name, well, I can, but I'm not going to see who they are, who bought some 757s from Boeing, and they would, they weren't always certain whether they could refuel or not. They would land with as much, and they, they would say, hey, we're going to land here and fuel up. And they would land with more than the design limit load of fuel in that wing. To the point they ended up breaking off a landing gear on landing and skidding down the runway with the thing broken off. Um, so, yeah, they, they do a lot of design, but there are some, some criteria of like, hey, you're not going to land this thing repeatedly with a full load of fuel. Certainly loading... The people are, people in the baggage don't really compare to the load of the fuel. Hey, I got a quick one, because this is my one area that of, uh, like, genuine, like, concern, and it, it kind of falls in line with the, uh, uh, like, bumblebee, bumblebee and its wings, and it's like, man, it just doesn't make sense, but it flies, like, it works. And to me, the, the tires and the landing gear on an airplane 
seemed so insufficient for how big <laughs> that plane is and how much it weighs and how fast it goes and how fast it takes yeah. off and lands and it's like man those things are like my truck tires out there it looks like and it's like these three little guys are gonna do it huh <laughs> how can you, you, you kind of put me at ease like how, how do those tires keep working for over so, and over? So, so they do a whole bunch of tests on that in fact uh, that's one of the things one of the design criteria is what they call maximum rejected takeoff so that means literally you're you're about to pull the airplane off the ground. It's about ready to fly. And for whatever reason, emergency is declared. And you, not only can you not use thrust reversers, which normally when you land, they'll hit the thrust reversers, which give you more than just the brakes. Well, they'll do a rejected takeoff where they'll basically just use brakes to land. I mean, typically they'll do this at a big air base like Edwards Air Force Base or someplace with a lot of runway. Um, and they'll cook the wheels off. And there's some, there's some. I can't remember what the FAA requirement is. You can, you can only blow so many tires. Uh, I mean, so, but yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I, I've watched the thing, like particularly when they had like the triple seven rejected takeoff, where they had, uh, those were they're all disc brakes, but these were graphite disc brakes, and they would you could set so much fire on, have a fire and it self extinguish, and yeah, that's pretty wild. That's a hard material problem. Um, but it's, um, it's, uh, but that 757, that, that Russian one, they took off and landed, took off and landed so many times with too much load on to the point where the landing gear is, is a huge shock absorber. And then there's a truck beam, which basically you see like on a big airplane, you'll see like, there's a kind of like, it's not like your truck. It's like, there's literally a fore and aft beam with tires in the front. They broke that thing in half and then the shock strut, the basically the beam that comes down, drug down the unrunway and caught on fire. But they had so much fuel on board that they didn't blow up because the fuel absorbed the heat from the fire, which was really weird. That, that is really weird. Yeah, but it just it, it always blows me away when I look at those things, man. And it's just like, God, those, those, they just look so small yeah. when, you, when you look at the airplane. It's oh, yeah. like, uh, but well, they, I don't know, they keep working. I, I remember uh, they had a... Back in the day, they had a video of a 737. They had made this version of 737 for landing at unimproved airports, largely Alaska. And it, it had these, like, uh, skirts they put on the uh, wheels to keep the rocks from flying up into the airplane. And they had a camera mounted in the wheel well. And, th and that whole, so the shock strut, you think of that as like a piston that goes down and the wheels are going off. That thing was like, it was moving, like, I don't know a foot each direction, like boom, 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 landing on this unimproved runway. And I'm like, that didn't break? I mean, so they do a lot of lot of work to make sure those, yeah, the design has a huge, the landing gear is very critical, obviously, and it has a big margin of error. So do you remember back, so you're in college, you get your job at Boeing. Do you remember the first time you like walked into a Boeing factory and you see all these big airplanes just in different sections of being built what that was like and what you thought yeah i mean i did an internship uh the year before i graduated and we, we got a lot of tours and stuff in manufacturing and it was it was all the renton plant which was at the time just a smaller plane 737 i think we did get a tour of the everett plant which is where at the time they were making the 747 and 767 triple seven didn't exist yeah it was it was uh it was awe-inspiring i just remember like being flabbergasted at the size of these things and having really no, I grew up on a farm in eastern Washington, I really have no idea about this stuff. I mean, I remember going to air shows and seeing B-52s and, you know, 
saw an SR-71, that was cool, but that was, you know, yeah, nothing like the, the the size of the 747 was flabbergasted. Uh, just, just being on, uh, 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 we've, we've done a couple roofs on air, airplane hangars and, and you know, being on the, the like manufacturing facility, it's it's just got to be like wow. <laughs> if you don't find much bigger buildings on the planet than than well, you know, where I don't know if it's still, still right. I don't know if it's still true, but at least back in the day when I was working there, the the Everett manufacturing facility was the largest building by volume in the world. Um, and I remember walking through there, and they, you know, we, at one point uh, they moved engineering out into what's called the Fuselage Responsibility Center. FRC, we refer to it as something else, but uh, we had to walk through the factory to get there, and they had these huge forklifts. I mean, they're massive forklifts taking big parts, and they would be like hauling sections. The, the 41 section was the basically the, the cockpit and the nose part of the airplane. I remember seeing moving a 747-41 section, which includes the top and the bottom with the cockpit and the top part, moving this thing on a huge crane. Just like, wow, that's... Uh, Hard, yeah, I mean, hard the, the, the buildings themselves are structural marvels, you know, not, not to mention the planes inside. It's just uh, it's just crazy, man, the size, yeah. uh, uh, the scale at which, you know, the, the, these things are built and what they're built in and just everything, man, the, to, from the parts. And, um, yeah, yeah it's just hard to, hard to comprehend. I remember somebody had a, a, well, it was a, a 3D CAD drawing of the 747, the, the engine on the 777 airplane, and... It had the fuselage of the 737. I mean, it's just a computer image. Uh, the, the scale of the inlet of the engine on the 777 was a 737 fuselage inside of it. It was that big. It's just, you know, hard to, hard to, until you're like, you see the thing up front, you see this engine, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean physics is physics, right? And 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 you can you can generally scale up and scale down, and it still works if it if it works, you know, at this size, it it's gonna work again at this size, you know. It's just uh, uh, it's you know, pretty simple when you do the math. But it, when you look yeah. at it with your two eyes, especially you know, you know, just being an average Joe who's not in the industry, it's just uh, yeah, it's kind of um, mind unbelievable. Yeah. Since you worked on airplanes, uh, has it changed your perspective on flying at all? Like, do you just think differently when you're on the plane, or is it just not no impact? Um, well, my wife always used to say she hated to fly with me because I was always telling her about statistics about takeoff and landing as being the biggest problems, um, where all, all accidents occur, or most accidents occur. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a big fan of turbulence still. Uh, Oh, you had a queasy stomach. Uh, but, you know, um, you know what I don't like about air travel is I think Airbus has the right name. You're just in this public transportation system, and there's not much you can do about it. You're in the system, and until you get out of the airport security, you're stuck with whatever they want to do to you, uh, which really doesn't have much to do with the actual airplanes. It's just the way the system works, thanks to 9-11. Um, so, um, yeah, but the airplanes themselves, you know, as long as they maintain it reasonably well, um, I don't worry too much about that. Well, Dan, this has been fascinating, and I'm sure we could talk for hours about it. And I learned <laughs> Dude, a lot. Just cut me off. Tell Dan to shut up. <laughs> no, and I mean, I, I know you and I, you know, when we worked together tonight a little bit about this, every time I talk to you about uh, airplanes, I learn many new things. Um, I think it's just fascinating 
uh, I mean, it's amazing to me still. I understand the science behind it, but I don't care what you say. This is some big old piece of metal and stuff, and, you know, <laughs> it goes five miles up in the sky at six and seven hundred miles an hour. It's pretty amazing, actually. Yeah, I used to fly gliders as a, as a, I never got my full license, but I always used to remember looking at the wing going, I know how that works, but I'm still just impressed that it actually works. Yeah, I've never, uh, I've never had a problem with flying. I've never been afra- uh, afraid of it. You know, it's just, it's one of those deals where you end up in a situation that's just, you know, completely out of your control. It's, it's nothing I can do. There's no sense yeah. stressing about yeah. it. You know, I'm just going to have to <laughs> trust that the guys who built it did a good job and the guy who's flying it knows what he's doing. And, I mean, I, there's not a whole lot of changes I can make now. You know, once we take off, I'm, I'm, there's really not a whole lot of turning back. So I've always just kind of been at peace with it. But I, I was actually curious, Kelly, like, you know, I mean, you got to – buddy who, who's obviously extremely knowledgeable about airplanes and i know you're not the hugest fan of flying but are, are you more at peace uh sure when i'm sitting here on the ground <laughs> that's a whole different podcast of uh you know i mean dan i think i mentioned a little bit and i guess i'll share with podcast listeners a little lot you know uh there's been a period in my life when i started out i Flying didn't bother me at all. I said, you know, we had this experience coming back from Texas one time, and there was a little bit of time in life when I didn't fly at all. Then a couple times that I've gotten to the airport and turned around. Um, Chris knows. I mean, I was supposed to go to a fantasy football draft once and didn't go. So um, I think I've gotten better, but it's a whole different thing. I mean, uh, you know, and actually, I think this is a good thing about our society um, that we're becoming more aware and accepting of people that have uh, mental health uh, things happening that and I would say this until you've gone through it like you can you can think it through but you know sometimes the mind is what the mind is and if anxiety hits um, like it's it's you know I don't see and like that's just a reality uh, and if you get anxiety, I think I, I've, you know, having had it over flying at times, uh, I've gained an even deeper appreciation for it. You know, you can tell your mind not to behave a certain way, but the mind will still do what the mind will do. Yeah. I, I, yeah, absolutely, man. I, I never had absolutely. Any, uh, experienced anxiety my whole life until, um, you know, I've, I've had it, uh, you know, a handful of occasions at this point, and, and um, it's... Uh, you get a new appreciation, man, when you experience it, and it's like, wow, this is. There's not a lot I can do. I don't really have control over myself right now, uh, you know. And and I think a lot of people have that with flying, you know. I, I, it, there's, it's, it's not a small percentage, um, you know. For whatever reason, no, I, I mean, to this point, I, <laughs> I'm just thankful that you know. Well, I couldn't do my job if 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 I was too scared of it, but, uh, I'm thankful that that's not one of them for me. I got, I got my own other issues, but flying, I just, like I said, I just like, well, it is what it is, man. I, you know, keep my fingers crossed. Do good job. Do good job. <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, uh, I'm not a, a big fan of turbulence and I, I'm the guy who's, uh, uh, people like close their windows. I'm like, can you open the windows? Can I turn the cold air on my face? Cause I, I need to, I need to be able to look out. I can't, uh, yeah, I'm not good with acrophobia either, so. <laughs> well, as I said, Dan, this has really been fascinating uh, on the airline front. Appreciate uh, all your listenership and 
sure. of our podcast. Really, really appreciate you being a guest. Um, and um, hope the both of you enjoy the Super Bowl on Sunday. We'll yeah. see what it comes out. I think we're all in on the Eagles. Probably means the Chiefs are going to win by three touchdowns <laughs> or something. Yeah, that's a lock. Well, the, the last time we said that, though, I forget what that game was. Uh, what was that? Anyway, uh, yeah, we, we were both in on a team, and I was like, well, that's pretty much money in the bank. Go bet the other guys. And uh, But we've made some strides throughout the season, though. You and I got off to a pretty rocky start, Kelly, and you, you and I didn't know much about football at all for about six weeks. And then uh, – I mean, I learned stuff. I don't know that you did, but I, but I definitely yeah, learned okay, stuff. Yeah, okay, I'm buying you the on. dinner. How many times are you going to rub it in? <laughs> so you're going to have future podcasts on the draft? <laughs> yeah, I hope yeah, so. I hope so. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think we're uh, – Kelly's we're got Rogers homework, go? Chris tells him, to become a podcast producer now. Oh, yeah, nice. I, thought, I thought you were the producer from, from Go. I, I, we're supposed to be on Radio Row right now, and you keep chucking me under the bus, but everyone knows it was your job. So Yeah, okay, baby. <laughs> um, yeah, no, we're hoping, uh, Dan, uh, you know, we're coming up with other things. We'll continue to talk about sports and uh, lining up a few other things, uh, topics outside of sports. You know, um, well, I could do more of this myself. So I don't know if you're uh, if one one time guy, but I I'd, I'd love to get back on the on the uh, headphones with you again too, and and talk more. I just think this is fascinating. It's something that I know very close to zero about, and yeah. uh, have never taken the time to like you know teach myself. And and so you know if I can learn some stuff from someone who's already done all the learning, uh, you know, I, I I dig it, man. It's fun for me. We could talk about commercial roofing. That'd be interesting too. Yeah, we're, we're yeah, penciling Chris in. He's gonna get the. Uh, I'm sure there's some interesting stories there. Questions. There are. I mean, there, there's some, but I mean, I think air travel is a little more fascinating than, you know, roofing is. But yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. I, I definitely know some stuff. I, all I know about commercial roofing is one time when I was a young, way younger, one of my brothers took me out on a building uh, job site. 20, like something like 20 stories up and locked himself out on the roof. <laughs> he was he was going to start climbing down the side of the building. Oh, jeez. <laughs> you got to get, uh, so my Uncle Tim, um, who, whom I work with, is, uh, uh, you know, he, he's, he's, he's the lifer, uh, old, you know, older than, than I am, obviously, and, and uh, been in roofing. Um, he, you know, he trained me, taught me, you know, most of what I know about, about what I do, and, uh, He's got some funny ones, man. I mean, he's definitely. You gotta got work on that guy per- to get on here, Chris. Yeah, agreed. He's he's got some pretty cool stories. I don't know what he'd be willing to share on air, you know, and and make permanent. But uh, <laughs> yeah, he's he's definitely got some good ones, man. You know, th- things have changed a little bit over the years, and some of the stuff that you used to be able to get away with, and some of the things yeah. that, um, you know, even even when I was a kid, you know, just the the freedom you had to make mistakes and and and. You, kind of get a pass and and just in general in life it just wasn't quite as uh uh governed and 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 litigated and everything else that goes with it right and, and yep. uh we, you know we were just free to kind of to, to make some mistakes and, and and you you know made made sense of it after the fact you know and made it right with the uh the people you needed to or whatever and and so um yeah tim's got some funny stories about being being in roofing when it was a little more wild wild west well, hopefully, hopefully that airline industry has not been that wild, wild west for a long time. 
No, they seem no. like they do a pretty good job. No, I mean, in all seriousness, I know I've read about, I mean, uh, you know, the safety checks and just, I mean, the paper trails and everything else of what's going on in the airlines. I mean, how they know where parts were built and a million other things and just, uh, I mean, I think it shows, I think about this sometimes too, but if you think about it, like, what level of organization a society has to have in order to have uh, airline uh, industry like airlines that can build with that level of safety record you know what i mean i mean there's a lot of yeah. pieces that actually have to come together to have an industry like that yeah well and it sounds like from what you were saying I mean, some of it was just trial and error man you try it didn't work and it's like oh, hey well, why did that break I'm like, let's, let's, let's check into that let's not do that again okay and yeah. uh well you know yeah, it's been around so long now we used to have design manuals which was basically what went wrong, why it went wrong, and why not to do that again. Um, the lawyers kind of eliminated some of that stuff. <laughs> I just, I, I found I it really interesting that the that the um, flight recorder, I, so uh, I did not realize how uh, involved that was, like down to the RPMs and, and all, you know, oh, yeah. that you can I mean, literally dial everything back and, and check, it, in, check it out. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it varies by the vintage of air aircraft obviously but the newer ones have a lot more data so cockpit voice recorder there's a flight data recorder um so and like i was just going to say uh, just to make you feel worse more nervous um 737 max i don't know much about that but no pilots in the u.s had the problem with that airplane and there's a lot of training here that other countries don't do and so that's kind of goes back to your concept of like culture of safety and experience and knowledge and having that infrastructure in place such that that happens yeah i mean uh, you know when, when i when i think about it i mean you know i mean i think about everything that i'm pretty sure that there's an, a ton of safety that goes on i mean you know no pilot obviously wants to take him or self out and so i'm sure that they're not cavalier from you know about getting into the plane they're going to fly it and everything else and i think throughout the entire system people have uh safety pretty much first and foremost and i i know sometimes airlines will you know cut corners at times but i think that we have a you use the phrase dan and i know we've talked about this in in like the software testing industry versus something like airlines i mean the redundancy in airlines is significant yeah yeah i mean buddy of mine who recruited me to microsoft he said yeah we don't have that level in you know software development for like word and excel and even windows we don't have the um the terminology I remember is from the guy who worked on the flight data uh, on the flight control systems. They have a hundred percent block and arc arcs for every code decision, and they test it over and over and over and over again. And, and the, uh, the redundancy and the repeatability are critical. So, just for folks that don't work in the software business, um, what Dan's referring to is um, blocks and arcs are terms from. A concept that's known as code coverage and a block is like any like group of lines of software code that are executed and an arc would be uh, a the jump from one code to another so you might have a block of code that's responsible for um, drawing you know the menu that you see on the screen 
and the arc might be uh, going from uh, what happens in the code jumping from the code that draws that menu to the code that causes an action to be executed um, when you are manip uh, picking something from that menu and yeah. in software what's that? Sorry, I should explain that. Uh, hey, this one I know. <laughs> it's very well, well, it's funny, Kelly, because you're talking and I'm someone who doesn't know uh, software and as you're talking, I realize, like, oh, yeah, I still don't know software. <laughs> so, uh, but I've looked at a menu before, so uh, I got that going for me. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> anyway. Well, I was just, so the difference with working on Internet Explorer with, with Kelly is we get 70% code coverage on blocks, 30% on art. I mean, decision. Like, if the you know you get this input from something, you go to execute this code or you go execute that code. We were lucky if we get 70%. On a, f on a flight control computer, it was 100% of both required all the time. And the 777 had three different architectures making the same calculations, and they'd vote. And uh, that had to be tested over and over and over again because you get hardware faults. No would, hanging you know, chads in that election. <laughs> no, no, because, you know, you get it wrong, somebody dies, or bad things happen. Anyway. I think we're over our time here. <laughs> ah, there's nobody going to kick us out of the room. No, uh -huh. Kelly's in charge. And we'll have a good Super Bowl. Yeah, hope so. Yeah. I hope it's a good yeah. game. Let's look I'd forward like to see the Eagles win. Looking the, forward yeah. to a good game, ultimately. Uh, Dan, I'll say thanks again for uh, all your thoughtfulness. We're definitely going to have to have you back and more than before the next Super Bowl. Chris, has always been a treat talking to you, and I hope the two of you gentlemen have a great week. Yeah, thank you, Kelly. Uh, again, I appreciate you having me on, man, and, and Dan, really really good sitting listening to you, man. I, I appreciate the time. Thanks for the invite. 